Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So, you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. When you think about it, and I did think about it, they commit manslaughter, breaking and entering, home invasion, jaywalking, littering, trespassing. Obviously, they don't know. Their, their laws are written for us. So for me, it was more of a fun and inviting way to talk about human-animal conflict, because human-animal conflict is what the professionals call it, and it's kind of, it makes it sound a little dull. So I, I thought it would be fun to present it in, in, in the form of crimes and criminals. That's Mary Roach. She makes what some might think of as dull facts into sparkling and entertaining stories. Her books are characterized by their one-syllable titles. The latest is called Fuzz. But our conversation ranges over several of her other titles as well, including Gulp, Bonk, and Spook. This should be an interesting, revelatory, slightly weird conversation we're going to have because you're such a master at stories that are interesting, revelatory, and slightly weird. Yeah, that's my thing. Your stuff travels fast and far because it's so quirky and interesting, not because it's of it's a conspiracy theory, which is the kind of stuff that usually travels fast and far nowadays. Yeah, yeah, it, I know. What happened to truth? Well, it got boring. Yeah, but it's not boring. That's the thing. Truth is so much more interesting. It is to me. Ordinary reality is interesting to me. Yeah, same same here. Same here, yeah. So you've got all these books with one-word titles. Grunt, gulp, stiff, bonk, spook. And then one that, I guess you couldn't think of more words, packing for Mars. That. <laughs> <laughs> we gave up. We failed. <laughs> we couldn't. There isn't. There is not a good one for that. But anyway, th- but the last book was was supposed to be three words and nine syllables. It was supposed to be animal, vegetable, criminal, and then Mark Bittman put out a book in spring called Animal, Vegetable, Junk: A History of Food, which isn't nearly as clever as Animal, Vegetable, Criminal. You know, this <laughs> doesn't rhyme with mineral. But anyway, we had to change it. And the reason that it included the word criminal is because, and why you called it fuzz, is because it's about when animals break the law, which is such a weird concept, that there are laws that animals are supposed to obey. Well, yeah, they're, they're, they're not supposed to obey them. Of course, they obey their instincts. But when you think about it, and I did think about it, 
They commit manslaughter, breaking and entering, home invasion, jaywalking, littering, trespassing. Obviously, they don't know their their laws are written for us. So for me, it was a just kind of a way to a little more of a fun and inviting way to talk about human animal conflict because human animal conflict is what the professionals call it. And it's kind of, it makes it sound a little dull. So I I thought it would be fun to present it in, in in the form of uh, crimes and criminals, even though, of course. The funny thing is in the, in the opening of the book, you actually do talk about, a history of laws that have been passed as though the animals were somehow capable of breaking a human law. Yeah, they, they were trials, and the animals were assigned legal representation. That's, that's what killed me, that there were people whose jobs sometimes involved representing animals as clients. They were assigned to them. I mean, I don't know where they're uh, 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 what was in it for them. I mean, there's obviously the, the animals weren't going to be paying a retainer. <laughs> so I guess it was just something they were assigned to do. But um, it, it was kind of astounding that these conflicts were assigned to the law rather than, you know, the things that I looked into, which are more uh, science-related solutions. Like what? You dealt, for instance, with forensics in the wild. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a chapter that has to do with the um, the forensics of attack scenes. So when an when an animal does kill a person, a wild animal, um, then the the crime scene is secured, and there's uh, the evidence is collected in a similar way to uh, when a person is found murdered by another person. So uh, and and there was a a course that I it was a five day class that I attended. Uh, on on the forensics of you know how to secure the scene, how to gather evidence, and also how to figure out you know in looking at the body, uh, you can look at the injuries on the body and pr- very quickly f- tell what species it is. That's not something normally on a crime scene. You have to figure out what species did this. It's, <laughs> usually, it's, it's usually the one we clear. know it's best. A human. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's usually what what weapon might have done this. Um, but yeah, so that that was a fascinating. A few days. It was held oddly in a casino outside Reno, Nevada. Uh, even though it was taught by Canadians, because uh, they have a lot of uh, bears and mountain lions up there. But it was uh, kind of a weird scenario because we had our room, which was a large conference room, which had a lot of soft touch mannequins that had been doctored to look like actual attack victims with, you know, heads scalped and hanging off and, you know, bites taken out of shoulders. And and in the next room was a bingo game and the people would walk by to go to the toilet and they'd look into our room and here were, you know, tables with naked, bloodied (laughs) human forms and a lot of people standing around. These were people who welched on their bets. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. This could be you. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you learn in that course? Well, I learned uh, to uh, uh, how to tell the difference between, first of all, uh, how to tell the difference between a, a mountain lion and a bear attack, uh, because, and that has to do with what these animals eat and how, how they kill and what they eat. A cougar is a uh, a carnivore that kills to eat. So it's very it's equipped for that. It's got... Uh, very sharp teeth that come together like scissors, so they, they they do these clean bites, like a single killing bite. It's a, it's not a messy corpse. And if you're gonna 
I would rather be killed by a mountain lion than a bear because it's, uh, they, first of all, they, they come up, they're very quiet, they're very stealthy cougars, and they, they come up from behind and they get close enough to kind of run and jump and pounce and bite the back of your neck and sever your spinal cord most likely. And then it's over very quickly. You don't even know what hit you. Whereas a bear, um, bears, because uh, they, when they fight with each other, they go for the face because it's lightly furred and they can they go kind of teeth to teeth. So that's what they know to do. So they do that on 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 people too. So you have a lot of very uh, ghastly fate, kind of skin pulled off heads sorts of situations. And they're also, their teeth are, uh, the, you know, they're not true carnivores. They're omnivores. They eat a lot of seeds and nuts and grasses. So they've got grinding teeth, you know, their teeth kind of um, the jaws go back and forth and the teeth are molars for grinding. So it's, 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 you know, it's, they, 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 they're, it's messy. <laughs> I, I know, uh, I know a family into whose home a bear entered, uh, when they were away. And you're right. The bears are omnivores. The bear found the freezer opened it up and ate a frozen loaf of challah and some Weight Watchers pops. <laughs> they, they'll eat anything. I was told that the bears in, um, uh, I spent time in Aspen, Colorado, where there are a lot of bears and a lot of wealthy people. And the bears are up, up in the mountains, and so are the people, the wealthy people. Um, and the woman who who deals with bear-human conflict there Tina, she said that the bears of Pitkin County uh, will absolutely not touch the cheap generic ice cream. They will go for the Ben and Jerry's <laughs> and the, the Hagen Dazs. They will have nothing to do. It's called Western Family Ice Cream, and they won't eat it. <laughs> Same with beer. They like premium beer. Better, better, really, better yeah. brand. Yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. Better brand. I'm starting to like these bears. Yeah. <laughs> Also in Fuzz, you talked about talked about gulls at the Vatican and how somebody was helping keep the square clear of gulls using laser beams. And did it did it work? So every every Easter, the Pope comes out onto an altar and does an outdoor mass for tens of thousands of people. And this uh, there's an elaborate floral setup. Two truckloads, refrigerated trucks come down from the Netherlands with daffodils and roses and all manner of things, thousands, 10,000 plants set up. And in the middle of the night, around four o'clock after the florists, a team of florists had spent the entire day setting up these plants, uh, these gulls came in and just attacked it, just vandalized it. Um, there were pots overturned, etc. Anyway, so they didn't want this to happen again. But lasers... Um, the lasers seem to work uh, in scaring. You set it up, and it's kind of like a disco light show. Uh, kind of, the, it's it's circling around. You have it sweeping around, so the beam is touching all the plants. And the theory is that the birds perceive this beam of light as a solid th thing, like a stick coming at them. It's called the stick effect, <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed to work. I went out at around. 4.30 in the morning, and the lasers were doing their thing, and the gulls were all sleeping on the cobblestones. But it, it seemed to me that it, it would have been simpler, rather than flying in the laser guy and his two laser scarecrows, could have just had one of those, you know, the Swiss guard at the Vatican, the guys in the striped knickers. Uh -huh. 
They could have just hired one of them to wave to his keep arms, an eye out. Wave, wave his yeah. arms and yell. That's my principle. That's what I don't. I'm not worried for about, about gulls. In our backyard, we have hundreds of geese. Yeah, and uh, so I every once in a while open the door and run out, waving my arms, yelling, "Hey, you geese, get out of here!" And they, yeah. as soon as the door opens, they say, "Here he comes again, the crazy guy," <laughs> and they start taking <laughs> off. Let, uh, let me ask you, the geese. Uh, what is your complaint with them? It's their, it's their crap, right? Yeah, yeah, they're they're it's they're the really good at that. They are good at that. I have a whole footnote about the actual amount that a goose poops in a day, and there's a lot of there's been a massive goose fecal smear campaign on the internet. A there's smear claims- campaign? You mean you mean we should? <laughs> We should all welcome it. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying it's grossly overstated oh. and gross working in both ways. It, 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 there are people saying it's two pounds, one goose uh, produces two pounds a day. There's people saying four pounds a day. One person said that a goose, a goose craps twice its weight every day. Well, a goose weighs 20 pounds. That's 40 pounds of shit. A horse doesn't, pr- well, a horse may produce that. But the goose does not. Anyway, I finally found a paper where somebody did calculate the amount of poop per goose per day, and it's like a third of a pound. It's not two pounds or five pounds or 30 pounds. Yeah, but they all get together in my yard. So I just told you about how I'm, I'm a little cranky about geese, and I love nature overall. But yes. one of the themes that pops up to me as I read your book, Fuzz, is the question, really, can we coexist with other animals yeah. as well as we should? In other words, as well yeah. as as well as we could that would give us us a benefit and them a benefit. Well, th- there are ways to, um, you know, it depends on the, it depends on the animal and it depends on what it is they're doing. But a lot of the time for the average homeowner, what they're doing is getting into, you know, eating the food on their fruit trees, digging in their planters, or getting into the attic to have babies. Uh, it tends to be those things. And there are um, there are things that you can do. The, the Humane Society of the United States has a very good resource called, I think it's called What to Do About, and it goes species by species, you know, raccoons, bats, geese, uh, blackbirds, uh, uh, with ways to to discourage them because you know these are all crimes of opportunity. The animal, you have something the animal wants, usually food or shelter. I'm not sure what the geese want from you. Probably they're eating your grass. Yeah, they seem to like. That. Yeah, they're eating your grass. Well, um, th- this is not a cheap solution, but you could uh, plant something that the geese don't like to eat. Huh? What would what would that be? Anything but grass. <laughs> you need to re-landscape. <laughs> you put a sign up that says free food and lodgings. Come on in, geese. <laughs> I knew this was going to be my fault. <laughs> One of your books is called Go. I'm curious to know about what was the most interesting story you you came across to you as you wrote gulp oh gulp well gulp is uh the subtitle is adventures on the alimentary canal so it's really uh it it follows that strange tube that goes from 
our mouth to our ass. And it's a, which is a weird world because there's different rules apply, you know, it, there's bacteria in there and all manner of <clears throat> unappealing stuff and the rest of the body has to stay sterile. So it is, we are basically donuts, you know, we've got this hole in the middle where anything goes. But one of the things that I, when I get down toward the further end of the tube, uh, I had a couple of chapters on, on flatus and one of them was about the history of how to study that because in order to study human flatus gas you have to get it out of the body and so there have been some really ingenious uh, techniques there was early on people came at it the way you might think which was they put a tube <laughs> up there and a bag and collected it that way but it's very uncomfortable and no one would sign up for the studies so that that didn't go very far uh, and then there was, fast forward, there was the um, flatographic technique. My, Michael Levitt, I believe, uh, uh, started that. And that was just simply uh, in studying the, um, the rates of flatulence. He would just have people mark down when they had passed gas. But you can't really judge people's flatulence by the number of times that they wrote a little hatch mark on the flatograph because it depended on how much one would release. And if you were the kind of person who was shy and embarrassed and you let it out in lots of little squeakers, you would appear to have seven to, you know, seven to ten hash marks on your flatographic recording versus somebody who let it out just in one basso profundo go. You just have one hash mark. And so that technique didn't work. That, was, that didn't work at all. And this same guy, Michael Lovett, uh, came up with something called the Mylar Pantaloon that his subjects would wear. So that that was a little more effective. But anyways, and I, I forgot to say that the researcher that did the original work with the tube up the butt, his name, he was British, his name was Colin Leakey. <laughs> you, know, you know, you raised a question in my mind. Do you ever feel a strong impulse that makes you think, I've got to make sure this appears as serious as it must be? It's not, it's not just weird. <laughs> And and a little nutty sounding. There's a purpose in all this. There's a purpose to all of it. it that's the, that's the, the what I I love about the about scientists who tackle some of these um, goofier, seemingly silly topics. Um, they're yeah, they're not. It's difficult for them to pre present it in a sober way because it's farts. But but when you think about it, flatulence is actually. Um, now, if you if you didn't release that gas, uh, you could die. I mean, a a a, a fart is a life saving maneuver because uh, it's it's it, it, when you need to fart, it, it's letting you know you better let this go because uh, if it, if you continue to stretch the intestine or the rectum, if you continue to let the gas build up, it could rupture. Mm. So, uh, it. it to be able to release that gas is to to stay alive. So it, it's important <laughs> to fart. So, so people are always so embarrassed when something like that happens uh, on the spur of the moment when all they could do beforehand is say, excuse me, I have to do a life-saving procedure here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that you could get yes, a medal if, if, for if, it, if, you know? If it, it, yes, if everybody understood the importance of farting, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be so ashamed. We shouldn't be so ashamed. And the even the the you know the the human anus is an amazing organ in that it is has the in, seeming intelligence to discriminate between 
gas, liquid, and solid and act appropriately. Mm. I mean, that's, that is kind of an extraordinary piece of equipment. So, you know, we, we should respect the lowly rear end organs. <laughs> When we come back from our break, Mary Roach delves into sex, the paranormal, and alligator wrestling, all separate subjects, right after this. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alda Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit. And your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Mary Roach. What about the book called Bonk, which deals with the science of sex? Is that, I assume it's called Bonk because it's when science bonks into sex. I'm cleaning it up a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bonking is a, you know, that when I was growing up in New England, bonk was a term we used. There, I think there are parts of the country that say boink and not bonk, because enough people mentioned that, that I had little letter I's made up that people could peel and stick on the cover if they felt that the title should be boink. Here you go. Make it boink. Uh, so it's a, it's a book about uh, the very awkward undertaking of bringing sexual physiology into a laboratory setting to study it. And it was awkward enough that for centuries, no one did study it. And there was a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of, um, uh, a lot of misinformation, to n- not, not purposefully spread as it is now, but spread because no one had really uh, uh, investigated it. I mean, people... It tended to sex tended to get studied in the within the context of fertility. If somebody mm. couldn't get pregnant, they would think, well, maybe it's something to do with they're not 
having sex right. So there, there was, you know, it, it did get some attention in that way. But in, uh, in terms of studying it for itself, sexual physiology, orgasm, and intercourse, and um, arousal, that didn't really get studied in a formal way until Masters and Johnson and Kinsey um, brought it into their uh, lab, or in Kinsey's case, up the attic. Uh, so, and that at the time in the '40s and '50s and '60s, that was a very brave thing to do. Because of the tenor of the times, they had to use euphemistic terms for everyday things that we all have and do. Oh yeah, Masters and Johnson really, really took that to the extreme when they published *Human Sexual Response*. They would they described a couple as a reacting unit, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> If the man lost his boner, it was a failure of erective performance. I mean, they they had science; they scienced up everything, uh, and they had to really because uh, even even then, even with all the um, technical jargon they used and created, they still, uh, in their words, uh, they had to hire a secretary to handle all the hate mail when that book came out. Mm. Uh, people just weren't. Didn't feel that I guess that that was a that was an appropriate um, thing for science to be doing. What about what about this? In your book, Spook, you deal with how science has tackled the notion of the afterlife. That that I I wonder if there's a, a reverse taboo at work there, because yeah, the, we, we kind of take it for granted that there is no yeah. afterlife. So why study it? Well, there's a taboo there in that um, studying anything that falls into the category of the paranormal, um, universities f- feel would would feel embarrassed and do. There are two in the United States that do have parapsychology programs. Um, the University of Virginia received a very large endowment from Chester Carlson, the inventor of the Xerox machine. Uh, And the endowment was specifically, the money was earmarked for the study of the persistence of personality after death. Mm. So spirits. Um, And so they do, uh, there are researchers there who study reincarnation and near-death experience, um, but they're not encouraged to talk about that. They're, They're in fact asked to keep it on the down low because the university, while they appreciate the money and they want to have the money and continue to be able to invest and use the money, they'd rather not be known as those crackpots who <laughs> fund research into reincarnation. So that is a stigma. I mean, there's a lot of ridiculous people claiming to do research, like running around with a radio shack electromagnetic meter and saying, oh, there's a spirit in here. I mean, no, there's not. There's lots of other explanations for why the needle jumped, but probably not a spirit. So there's lots of kind of crackpot stuff going on. But I I feel that if you did a well-designed study, um, and some people have done those, that that more power to them. Why should we not look into that? I mean, it's it's intriguing and interesting. And if it's done well, that there was a study years and years ago, I reported on this for a magazine, um, a study that was done at the University of Edinburgh was on telepathy, uh, you know, sending thoughts, mm. right? And, um, you know, I'm a bit of a skeptic. I'm a science gal. And I was like, let's, what, what, what appealed to me about this was that the University of Edinburgh, parapsychology professor, worked with PSYCOP, which is the Committee for Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, a skeptics group. So together, they devised an experimental protocol that both felt sat- satisfied their 
demands. Mm. And I, I thought it was fascinating. You know, why, why would why not look into that? Why should universities be discouraged from looking into those things? That's the that's a stigma that exists for sure. What's interesting is you were just expressing a really strong sense of curiosity about everything without limits. And that's that's taken you around the world, I, I gather. <laughs> have, have you yeah. found yourself in danger because you you didn't think about the consequences of what you were stepping into ever? It, well, I, my curiosity, I, no, I've never felt like I, I'm in, I, I can't remember a time I thought I'm going to die because of my book research. But I do do things like somebody was testing um, a new rat trap that is humane because it kills very quickly, but the animal needs to get its head up in there and then a bar comes through. Anyway, but the bait has to be very appealing. And it's and they had this rat bait and it smelled very chocolatey and coconutty. Um, and this is not a poison bait. It's a bait just to get the animal to go in. So I, I tasted it and the guy, the guy looked at me. He's like, you tried it? <laughs> and it's like, I was curious. I don't know. Is that weird? I don't. Yeah. So anyway, I, I guess I don't. Um, I, I my curiosity <laughs> leads, and maybe my sense of self-preservation does not. Yeah, I know what that's like. When I did the science show, Scientific American Frontiers, Graham, who you were chatting with before we went on, uh, it was uh, the producer of this show was the producer of Scientific American Frontiers. And you talked with him for about five minutes. He seems like a nice, mild-mannered person, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. <laughs> he, he tried to kill me several times. <laughs> Why? He had me help catch an eight-foot shark while we were in an 11-foot rowboat. Uh-huh, okay, and then, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. I, and then I had to slice a little, little opening in the shark's belly. Oh, geez. To put a radio in so so they could track the shark's movements. It was to help the shark not be attacked by humans. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. To find out where they go and right. what their route is so that— Right. To, to educate humans about the lives of sharks, that if you try to kill a shark after a shark attack, you're probably getting an innocent one because the real yes. one is in Newfoundland by now. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what it just occurred to me? I did a I did a series of stories— called The Slightly Wider World of Sports. And my editor would send me to learn bullfighting, alligator wrestling, um, dirt biking, jousting, knife so throwing. So was your yeah. editor Graham Chedd? <laughs> it's the female version of Graham, uh. <laughs> evidently. Yeah, she said, so, don't worry so, about it. We'll get you. We'll sign you up for work, workers' comp. <laughs> You'll be fine. Graham said to me one day, now we're going to have to walk up to the top of Mount Vesuvius. And there it was <laughs> looming in the distance. I said, why, why would we do that? He said, but we have to shoot the story up there looking down into the hole. I said, I don't think I want to climb to the top of Mount Vesuvius. He said, why not? I said, because the story we're doing is how it could blow at any second. Exactly. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. But I went up. Yeah. I'm looking at this, these fumes coming out. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I would have done that, too. I would have done that, too. The uh, alligator story, um, the place where I learned alligator wrestling, the guy also had tourists come in, and he said, and his whole thing, he said to me, alligators, and he, he's right, alligators rarely 
attack a person. Crocodiles will, but not alligators. People don't know the difference. So they think it's pretty, they think it's pretty impressive, anything you do. Uh, so he said, what I'm going to have you do, there's a 20-foot female alligator um, th- that we need to transport from one side of this lagoon to the other. The lagoon is full of alligators. He said, they won't bother you. They're not interested. They want to eat things the size of a small dog. They don't want to eat a human. Uh, he, he, um, so he had me wade into this lagoon with 20 large alligators and, and put, uh, I had a, a stick with a kind of a lasso and I had to put it around the neck of this female and pull <laughs> pull her off her little roost on the edge and encourage her into the water and over to the other side. And there was a group of tourists watching going, <gasps> Um, and I was fine, but I read later when I was working on fuzz, I looked up the number of people killed by alligators and there are actually a few people (laughs) killed by alligators. So I was like, that was not the smartest thing to have done. I don't think he was completely, no, it was not mentioned that day. Yeah. I once uh, wrote a scene in the movie where I which I was also directing, so I can't blame anybody but myself, where I wrestled a tiger. And the tiger would keep going after my arm, which I had would hold up to protect me, protect myself. And then she just sat down and stared at me. She got she realized she wasn't getting anywhere, so then she reached around and bit me in the behind. And at that, at that point... The assistant director said, I think we've got this shot now. <laughs> and a fine shot that was. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've, we've reached the end of our time. You, you have about 10,000 more stories to tell, and readers can enjoy them in your books. But before we go, we always end our show with seven quick questions. Okay. They're roughly to do with communication. Okay. Okay. And you're so so curious about so many things. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood uh, what—this is just very much uh, uh, recently. I wish I understood why people believe— conspiracy theories instead of fact. I I don't understand how misinformation and conspiracies have taken root so firmly in in this country. I don't understand. I I wish I understood that better. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I'm not good at that. I I just say you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, you're you're wrong, and I tell them why they're wrong, and we get into a little spat, and we go back to our corners, and and I didn't convince them, and they didn't convince me. So I I I I I'm sure there's a good way to do that, but I don't know what it is. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> What's the strangest question? Okay, here's well, I was doing a talk at the Commonwealth Club for Gulp. And somebody, somebody, the card, the question card said, what is the best place to look for anecdotes about the liver? (laughs) (laughs) That is the strangest question anybody's ever had. A whole novel follows. Why does this person need to know an anecdote about a liver? 
Yeah. And why does that person think there's a place to go? Yeah. Next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? <gasps> oh, I need to know this. Um, I, I, I don't. No, I, I just in the future try to, to, to spend less time with them. I don't know how, what do you, what, what do you do? We, we have several f- friends of my husband's <laughs> <laughs> that are compulsive talkers. Also, I've got, I'm, I'm, my mom's, my dad's side, sorry, we're Irish. And there's some, some, some real Irish talkers uh, in my, in my family. My, I have a cousin. Uh, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know. You, you've asked this qu- question to many, many people. So you, you tell me. I, we, I asked it to about 175 people. Very high in the list is I have to go to the bathroom. Well, you can escape, but you didn't ask me how do you escape. Escape is easy. I'm going to go get another drink. I'm, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Yeah. yeah. But how do you stop? I think maybe a, an app on your phone would be very good if you could <laughs> reach into your pocket and touch a button on the phone and it rings yes. with a false yes, phone Yes, I think that exists. I think that I think there Does is it? a service. I think there. I, I seem to recall something a service you could set up. Uh, but again, that's an escape. Yeah. Okay. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you generate a genuine, authentic conversation with that person? Um, some people are easier than others. Um, a genuine, authentic conversation. Uh, reveal something about yourself. That you that that isn't chit chat. Just you you open the door first. You ever notice that if you if you have any kind of a health issue and you bring it up, all of a sudden, one in five people you know has the same condition. You know, it's like you, you yeah. or or uh, if you're in a relationship that's breaking up, if you're going through a divorce, or you're you bring it up and you open the door and other people reciprocate. I find next to last. What gives you confidence? Um, um, what gives me confidence? Um, good feedback from, from, you know, I mean, I'm thinking more of, about my writing, confidence in my own writing. I, I, I have no, con- I don't have confidence. I write a book and I think it's garbage until I put it out there and my editor sees it and I get feedback from people. And then I say, yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, this is pretty good. Uh, so I can't, I don't seem to be able to generate my own confidence, but um, I I accept it readily from people who don't have a reason to. It's not like Hollywood where everybody loves you. Right. Uh, uh, it's you know when when it's people that that genuinely uh, they don't know you and they don't have a reason to be saying this. It's like the old the old Hollywood joke. The agent says to the actor, "You can hate me for this. You can fire me if you want." But I have to say, I think you're a genius. <laughs> okay, last question. What book changed your life? Um, what book changed my life? I think, um, and I'm talking again about being a writer. Not a, It's not a personal growth kind of epiphany type book. It, it was um, reading... Bill Bryson early on in my writing career made me realize it's possible to combine reporting and personality and humor in a way that works and and is fun for the writer and fun for the reader and also 
people learn something. I, I think that because uh, when I first got out of college, I didn't want to read anything because I was tired of be- people telling me to read books. And, and, and Bill Bryson's books were some of the first that I read because I wanted to read. I, you know, it got me back into reading and, and eventually writing. So, um, and the first one was, the, the book was Lost Continent, his first, which it came out in the 80s. And it was, it was just a moment where I thought, I could do something like this. Not as well as him. Uh. But, but that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for a book. I'm, you're looking for something. No, no, no. That that's exactly what I'm looking for. And I understand your reaction to that book. He was a guest on Clear and Vivid, and you could see that he had the same curiosity you had, you have, yeah. and and the desire to spread the fruits of that curiosity like like a good meal. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you. This has been a fun talk. I really enjoyed it. Oh, me too, Alan. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to meet you. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Mary Roach's books, most of them New York Times bestsellers, include Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, Gulp, Adventures in the Alimentary Canal, and Bonk, the curious coupling of science and sex, as well as her latest, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. You can find her other books at her website, maryroach.net. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Stefan Alexander. He's a professor at Brown University where he heads the Stefan Alexander Theory Lab. The lab studies the exotic worlds of cosmology, particle physics, and quantum gravity. And Stefan is also a jazz musician, his music informing his physics, and his physics informing his music. But his stellar career was almost derailed before it began. Even in grad school, I had dreadlocks, and I had my way of talking, and, you know, a Trinidadian Bronx accent. You know, it was kind of kooky in my own way. I still am. But I think many of, I think many of my classmates, I mean, some even admitted to me today, they, like, they read me in this way as if, like, Stefan is not smart. He's not really a physicist. He doesn't, he's not, doesn't fit the bill. Stefan Alexander, who fits several bills, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening.
Bye-bye.